Imagine a place where students use media, creativity, communication, and critical thinking to make stories come to life. A place where authentic audiences are enlightened by the kids who live there. Hawk Media Productions at Kealakehe Intermediate School, located in Kona, Hawaii, is an example of that place where students strive daily for the summit. From school broadcasts, Hikino stories, community spotlights, and now podcasts, Hawk Media Productions hopes to inspire other schools to get involved in meaningful learning in the community and the world. Believe it or not, all schools have the students, teachers, and community partners to be the spark for what school could be in Hawaii. Welcome to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This series features the stories of creative and innovative educators who are influencing, motivating, and inspiring Hawaii, the nation, and the world. Now, let's send it off to your host, Josh Rapoon. Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. Today we're with Zoe Ingerson, who is an educator at the School for Examining the Essential Questions of Sustainability, otherwise known as SEEKS. And she is also our 2020 Charter School Teacher of the Year. Zoe, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So Zoe, we're, we're doing a format now that we call 10 Questions. So it's going to be 10 questions with Zoe. Um, so we're going to start into question number one. So I apologize. First at bat, first pitch, and I'm going to throw you a curveball. Oh, man. Um, so here's question number one. Um, David Epstein has written a book titled Range that argues generalists triumph, and I'm, I'm putting that word in quotes, air quotes here mm-hmm. for our radio audience, the generalists triumph in a specialized world, meaning folks who have a broad understanding of a range of knowledge and skills tend to be more successful than those who specialize in, say, chemistry or literature. If, and that's a big if, the evidence supports him, surely our K-12 schools that track kids towards majors early on and colleges and universities that solidify uh, that specialization, in other words, that they're the chief culprits in making uh, the last 150 years uh, uh, the age of narrow specialization, Um, if that evidence is there to support that idea. The question is, what are your concerns as your students at SEEKS matriculate forward to colleges and universities in 2020 and beyond? Ooh, that is a big question. Um, I think a lot, and I, I teach middle school, you know, and so I'm doing a range of things every day, but what I really think about is and worry about is that students aren't going to find the thing that they're passionate about. They're not going to find that voice and agency that I think is so important. And I think you're talking about generalists versus specialists, and I would argue that I think in the world of tomorrow and what students are going to need to be doing, whatever they choose to do, college or their careers, they need to be able to be resilient. They need to be able to pivot, to solve problems, to do a variety of different things. And so I don't think think it's actually a generalist versus specialist type of question. I think we are really trying to cultivate a student that can look at a problem, think at it from a variety of perspectives and say, okay, this is how I want to tackle it. And I worry sometimes that I, I always question what I'm doing in my classroom, right? Am I setting kids up to really be able to look at the world that way and to really take a step and think around and say, okay, 
can I tackle this? Can I rethink what I'm doing? And so I don't know if that actually answers your question, but I think about it a lot in my students and just down to the little things of like, oh, well, I don't have a pencil today. And even that little question, I'm like, well, who, whose responsibility is it to solve that problem? Mm-hmm. Okay, mine. And building that resilience of saying, okay, whatever challenge that comes at me, whatever I want to do, that I can look at it, solve it, and kind of drive a path forward. So, what are what are some of the ways that you're that you're working with your students to turn them into generalists? and at the same time into specialists. I want them to be able to find the things that they're really excited about, but also offer them that exposure. I think in middle school also, my responsibility is to open all the doors of possibility Mm -hmm. and to help you feel comfortable in your reading, in your writing, in gardening, in math, in whatever it is that you're excited about, but that exposure is so key. And I think that that's the equity piece that we're also looking at in middle school is that kids or certain groups of kids that aren't exposed to certain topics or certain questions, that then they're at a disadvantage later on because that door hasn't been open to them. And so you assume that it's closed. Mm -hmm. And so my job is really to make sure that those doors stay open and that kids know, okay, I can do whatever I want and that I know how to seek help. I know how to ask the questions that are going to get me there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Great segue to question number two (laughs) then. Um, So you're our 2020 State Charter School Teacher of the Year, which is absolutely epic and awesome. Um, In a video posted about you on YouTube by the Hawaii Charter School Commission, I watched you ask your students uh, the following question. What is the biggest growth? What is the biggest thing you have improved on this year? So I'm going to turn the question around and ask you, Zoe, what is the biggest growth? What is the biggest thing you've improved on in this 2019-2020 school year? I love that question. It's something I think about all the time because at the beginning of the year, I always set a word or intention or something that I really want to get better at. And so I started the year really thinking about the question of joy and how to have my classroom be a more joyful space. Um, But it actually kind of turned into this totally tangential, but I think related teaching goal of feedback to students and then also joy of reading. So I kind of diverged into these very different, but I don't know, talking over myself. But I think just cultivating this sense of ownership of your learning that I want in my classroom. And so something that I did this year is I redid how I confer with students. I have a new system of how I give feedback for them. I have a schedule for myself. I'm disciplined about it with the goal of just talking with kids more, listening with kids more, reading their work more, and then giving them time to do that in class. And so the feedback has been a really big growth that I've had this year. And then also my other project with the reading and having a more joyful reading space is that I've been working for the past few years to build our school and my classroom library. And so now I have so many more books, so much more time in my classroom to read. And so I feel like that's something that I've really grown in this year is being able to just kind of let students go, read what they want to read and make time for it in class, um, but also give them the feedback that they need so that they can actually improve. So what's the new system of feedback that you're putting in place? So my challenge has been that in my classes, I've got 30 plus students. I've got them for 70 minutes every other day. And so it's definitely like a time bound thing. And so what I actually did is I just group my students. I have a schedule. I tape it in my planner. So I have five students every day that I give, uh, that I plan a conference for. So I read their writing. I plan out what I'm going to say is their compliment, what my teaching point is. And then I have another five students in each class that I give them feedback online. Mm -hmm. So it's just my way of really being honest with myself because the past few years, I mean, I love teaching writing. It's my passion. I adore it. 
and still in the previous years of writing instruction, sometimes you go to assess a piece of writing and you're like, oh man, I haven't looked at this in three weeks. Mm. Oh man, I never conferred with the student about this. Oh, I didn't realize, you know, and all these things. Are, so I'm trying to be more honest about myself and making sure that I have those touch points with kids because listening to kids, listening to what they're working on as writers is what's going to push them forward. And so it's actually been a lot about scheduling and making a spreadsheet for myself, but it's been working really well to just make sure that every kid gets the personalized attention that they deserve. And what kind of feedback are you getting from the kids about the new feedback system? I, I was cracking up about it the other day because I got we do a panorama survey of, you know, how is your teacher doing? How do you like your classroom? And that was the one that I immediately looked for. There's a question on there that says, my teacher gives me feedback that helps me learn. And it was like 95% positive. And I said, there it is. Like, there's, I mean, there's a million other things I can be working on, but this year the feedback has really been something that I've striven for. And wow. Yeah, it's been good. When you talk about measuring things, sometimes it goes completely sideways because we're measuring things that are painful to measure. Totally. Um, but that sounds like a metric that you really strive for. Oh, yeah. There are other questions, you know, are questionable. That one, I was like, if my teacher is not giving me feedback that helps me learn, I mean, what am I, what am I here for? Right. Like, that's my whole purpose. Right. And making sure that feedback is individualized. Because I can tell the class, okay, today we're working on dialogue. But if I don't sit down with you and I say, how's it going for you as a writer today? Hmm. Then it's irrelevant. Cool. Okay. So continuing on, question number three. In that same video from the Charter School Commission, you described writing as a gatekeeper, quote unquote, um, and that your goal is to, quote unquote, demystify writing. So what do you mean by gatekeeper and, and what part of your teaching practice are you developing that will demystify writing for your students? So what I mean by a gatekeeper is that writing, especially writing in standard English, is a language of power. And I believe that to be an equitable educator, I need to help students be able to reclaim that and be able to write whatever it is they want. You know, I know people who have a visa because of the writing piece that they produced. I have the job I have because I was able to produce a high quality piece of writing. And I think a lot of kids are really scared by writing. So what I tell them every year, I tell them my kind of writing journey through year, through my years of school, but I don't want you to love writing. I just don't want you to be scared of it. Mm. And so for me growing, going through school, I remember the turning point in fifth grade, I loved writing. I would write this like, I was writing this chapter book, like kind of fan fiction on Little House on the Prairie because that was what I was into. And I mean, I wrote maybe 50 pages. I was so proud of this piece of writing. And then I went to middle school and we went to five paragraph essay land. And I remember we had a graphic organizer and every time I got a piece of writing back, there was red marks all over it, awkward, awkward, misspelled, all these things. And I labeled myself a bad writer. I labeled myself a struggling writer and I never knew how to make it better. I would just keep turning in these pieces of paper that I had worked on at home. And I thought, well, okay, I'm getting this B, this C, whatever the grade was on it, but I don't know how to improve. And I remember pivot, the pivotal moment and realizing that I looked at writing differently was in eighth grade. Mm. And my class had written this um, epic poetry unit and we were going to make a class book. And my teacher said, okay, we're going to do a competition for the person who can write the best introduction for this class book. And I was like, okay, I, I can do this, right? So I write this introduction that I think is great. And then we got the class book and my introduction had obviously not been chosen. And I read the introduction that my friend had written 
And it was like I was reading a different language. The way that she wrote that just was so clear to me, like, oh, there's something she knows about writing that I do not know, that she had a voice, and I absolutely did not. And so I kind of, like, held that with me. So what I tell kids all the time is I don't want you to feel like I did, that I found my writing voice when I was in college. And that's when I really felt like, oh, I can do this. But if you feel that way in fifth and sixth grade, how much more powerful are your opportunities going to be? How much more powerful your learning experience is going to be? Because it's an option. So I mean by gatekeeper is that it's it's a huge advantage. It's something that's going to make a big difference in your life. And if you're scared of it, if you feel like you can't do it, you're not at the same, you're not on the same playing field as others. Wow. You know, my sense of the written word is actually hugely shaped by Little House on the Prairie. I was completely <laughs> I obsessed with Laura Ingalls Wilder <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, with her books, and I read them through and through over and over again. I love them. And um, so that's that's like drop the mic. You have you were, we're bonding now because of Laura Ingalls, <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, question number four, one of your students said in that same video, by the way, that your lessons are very engaging. And your school director, um, Bo, uh, Buffy Cushman-Pates, said that you're one of the best teachers she has ever seen. So I know we tend to walk on the humble side of the street here in Hawaii. I, I get that. <laughs> but what makes your teaching engaging? In other words, why did that student say that? And what made Buffy Cushman-Pates say that about you? I do walk on the humble side of the street. I feel like I'm surrounded by so many amazing educators. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Like nothing that I do is awesome, but I will answer the question. I think what makes my teaching engaging is that I make it relevant to what they're working on. But what makes my teaching the best is that I let them do the thing. That the reason that I think I'm successful in the classroom is that when I teach writing, I'm not talking for 45 minutes. My students are writing for 45 minutes. And I tell them that very, very often. I'm like, how do we get better as writers? And they're like, by writing, by practicing. I'm like, exactly. If you're not writing, you're not getting better as a writer. If you're not reading, you're also not getting better as a writer. Mm. And so I think that's what makes it engaging that kids know, okay, well, she's going to talk for 10 minutes, but then I'm going to be able to do that thing. And I'm going to try the dialogue that she suggested. And then I'm going to be able to check check with my teacher one-on-one. And so I think that's what's engaging to students. And they also know they don't have to, like, do all this meaningless stuff for, you know, there's no worksheet, there's no nothing. Um, But I hope that that's what they would say makes my teaching engaging, that Mm -hmm. I try to make it really relevant to exactly what we're doing. I have one teaching point every day, and then kids get to do the thing Mm -hmm. because they're not going to be able to get better at it if they don't practice. You're you're bringing up a a memory of a high point in my life. In the seventh grade, uh, my seventh grade English teacher wanted us to, to do some sort of a writing project, and I wrote a graphic novel Um, and uh, she ended up calling my parents in for a special conference (laughs) because she felt that the content of this graphic novel was too dark and disturbing for a seventh grader. (laughs) And I look back on that as a high water mark of my life. I'm like, yes, I got my parents pulled into the school by, you know. Um, But writing words matter. Absolutely. And how you craft words and... um, that was a, very much a, a, a part of what made school engaging for me or not, mm-hmm. depending exactly. on who the teacher was. Well, and choice in writing matters, too. Right. That if I gave you all the same, okay, we're all going to write this opinion essay about whether or not we should wear uniforms or not, like, okay, maybe I'll get better at some things, but I'm not really going to find my voice as a writer. Mm. And I think that's one of the best compliments that I give to kids is this writing sounds like you. Right. And 
it's a big deal. I've, I've never felt myself to be a journalist or a, a journal writer. Mm-hmm. I've never been comfortable with like sitting down and writing in a journal. But then one day I discovered that you could write articles on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And so I started journaling, quote unquote, right. on LinkedIn. And that was really neat because occasionally I get feedback from people who would tell me, wow, that was interesting or mm-hmm. here's what I think about that. So that's yeah. very cool. Okay. So question number five. I want to talk about what I think is an extraordinary document, and I, I can't emphasize that word enough. I, I truly believe um, that this is an extraordinary document. I'm, I'm referring to the emerging Department of Education 2030 Promise Plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and sorry, I'm turning the page here, um, which promises that our public school system will be organized around five themes. Grounding in Hawaii place and culture, equity, school design, empowerment, and innovation. So my question to you is, between now and 2030, over the next 10 years, what promises do you want to make and keep to your students and your school community? Mm, I love that. Um, I think the biggest promise that I want to make to my students is that I'm going to listen to them. I think student voice is something that I really strive for in my classroom, but then every day I think, okay, that's something I need to get better at. It's something that I think is really missing from what we're talking about in our conversation surrounding schools. And I know that that's one of the pillars, right, of the DOE kind of mission or drive, right? The three pillars right now. Teacher collaboration, student voice, school design. Exactly. And I feel like I want kids to have more of a say in what their schools look like in the next 10 years, because I think that's what a more promising future for them is going to be, who our teachers of tomorrow are going to be. And so I think students having a say in what they do every day in class, every day at school, what their schools look like and feel like and what values are enacted in them, I think that's, I think, the biggest promise that I would want to make to students is that I want to listen to you more in the next 10 years. Wow. And just a few days ago, I read something in the paper that Kaimuki High School, which actually Mm -hmm. hosts your charter school, it's the only relationship in the state of Hawaii where a charter school exists on a public school campus. That, that, that the Kaimuki High School campus is going to go through a redesign yeah, and that you guys would be potentially part of that process. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge opportunity. I think right now the details are a little nebulous, and so yeah. we'll see what it becomes. But I think it's a really it would be a really special opportunity for a partnership to continue and to listen to kids also and what that looks like. Mm. Okay, so hey, everybody. <laughs> We are going to take a short break and come back with more from Zoe Ingerson. So stay with us. Purple Maya, our specialty is providing cultural-based programming to learn technology and computer science. We are always looking for teachers, volunteers, and schools to partner with. But our programs aren't only for Keiki. Heard of the Purple Prize? We're accepting applications now for Kamaka Inana, a design and venture ideation program for adults interested in creating solutions that positively impact the Pai Aina. It's about shaping the way Hawaii designs for the future. Visit us at purplemaia or purpleprize.com for more info. Also, how major is this podcast? Keep up the good work, guys. This is Toy and Amber from Entre Ed Talk. We are so excited to uplift this cool new podcast coming to you from the middle of the Pacific Ocean. What school could be in Hawaii? 
As always, we're super excited to support innovation and education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of these incredible educators on our own podcast, EntreEd Talk. If you're looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators from across the world, join us as we share their journey and insight. Be sure to check us out wherever you listen to podcasts at EntreEd Talk and like, subscribe, and drop us a review today. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, I'm Tyler Kern from MarketScale, and you're listening to What School Could Be in Hawaii, a podcast partnership between MarketScale and Josh Rapoon, exploring the latest insights and thought leadership in the world of edtech. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts these days, or just head to marketscale.com, click on industries at the top of the page, and scroll down to edtech. We'll see you there. Hey, everybody, we're back with Zoe Ingerson. So, Zoe, we're moving on to question number six. I know it's hard to nail down one answer to this question, but here goes. What is, in your mind, the one thing more than any other thing that makes students K through 12 most likely to succeed? One thing. I think, I think about resilience a lot. And I was saying that earlier that I think that kids get, I mean, they have all sorts of different, right? They've got their family issues or whatever they are. You've got social issues and peer issues and you've got the school thing. There's a lot of issues and challenges coming up to them. And I think if students were able to be more resilient and bounce back from that and identify, okay, what's the problem? How am I going to move forward? I think that we would get more resilient people in the world also. And I think that's something really important that I try to cultivate in the classroom. Okay, you forgot your backpack today. That's fine. What are you going to do about it? Oh, you didn't do well on this math test. Okay, well, what are we going to do about it? Like there's a path forward to everything. And I think it's part of also a growth mindset of saying, well, okay, this is something that happened. I can get better at this thing. I can bounce back from whatever the challenge is. And I think that pliability, that resilience in kids is going to be what makes kids not only happier, but also more successful in their lives. And, you know, you're talking about Ted Dinnersmith's book and the entrepreneurialness of the future and what we need in terms of innovation. I think it's buried in resilience also. Okay, this business that I had failed, what's a need? What am I going to accomplish next? And so that would be my one Mm -hmm. secret sauce element for, I think, what our kids need. I did a breakout session at a conference, the Leading Schools of the Future conference, where I actually dug deep into that particular question about the one thing. And interestingly, well, maybe not for you, I think that you would probably resonate with this. The common answer overwhelmingly from everybody who participated was that that one thing is that trusting, caring adult on Mm -hmm. campus. And I remember in reading your personal statement about why I teach, um, you mentioned that as a really important idea. So talk to us about that. Absolutely. Every kid deserves one person, one person to believe in them, and that person's going to change their lives. There's so many studies that show that kids who are successful had one person that might have changed their lives, done something or stayed with them through a hard time. 
I mean, it's just really powerful what one relationship can be or one conversation can be to a child. And so I absolutely think that that one caring adult makes a huge difference in a kid's life because it allows them to understand like, oh, I'm a person worthy of being believed in. Mm -hmm. I'm a person worthy of being cared for. I'm a person worthy of being loved. And that that'll pull you through all those hard times. And that creates that resilience also. And it seems important that schools not just take that idea for granted, that they actually have professional development conversations around what it means means to be that trusted Well, professional adult. development conversations, but also just structures at your school. Are there times that your teachers can go and just have a conversation free from academics, free from your standards, free from whatever, that you can go and have that conversation with a kid? Is there support for those conversations? Right. Is there a homeroom advisory? Is there unstructured time, right? I think that, yes, there needs to be the conversation, but there's also the explicit support and structure that allows that to happen too. Right. Okay, so question number seven. Um, I want to talk about one course you teach that was mentioned in a Department of Education video about all the nominees for Teacher of the Year. You co-teach a project-based agriculture class and serve as the department head and lead teacher for this interdisciplinary course. You teach in a quote-unquote full inclusion classroom, and you are passionate about supporting students across a variety of environments and subject areas. So the question, Zoe, is what is the innovation that is a quote-unquote full inclusion classroom, and what does it look and sound and feel like to be in that kind of space? So all my classes are actually full inclusion, which means that students who receive services for special education are fully included in the classroom that I have. So most of the classrooms that I teach in have another grown-up, a special educator, an inclusion specialist that help differentiate the experience for all those students. And what I think the power of it is, is that all students, regardless of what their strengths, weaknesses, goals are, that they're in a classroom, they're together, there's no... There's no separation. There's no segregation of, okay, well, kids who have an IEP come over here. Kids with this type of plan come over here. But we're all learning together. And what I love about my project-based class is that you kind of take away, on some days, the academics of everything. And that someone who maybe really, really, really struggles in math is going to plow the field, is going to research what seed needs to go in this place, is going to figure out how to solve our aquaponics issue, right? That you have both of these things where we can celebrate the strengths in everybody. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of things about full inclusion classrooms is that it's just good practice teaching that when I taught in a self-contained classroom or now that I have a mixed grade full inclusion classroom, there's still the same range of differentiation because every single kid needs something different because every child is different. Mm. And so full inclusion, I think, takes the barrier between special education, general education away and makes us really think, well, how am I going to provide an opportunity for every child to learn? How am I going to provide an opportunity for everybody to show their strengths and everyone to identify what they want to get better at? I remember one time I was flying, I went to the University of Iowa to finish my my undergrad back mm-hmm. in the 90s. And I remember one time I was flying back to Hawaii because my, my dad um, was ill. And it was a totally cloudless, clear day. And I had a window seat. And I was flying over the Midwest. And I remember suddenly having a sort of epiphany about the, about the geometry of farming. <laughs> and that as you fly over mm-hmm. this incredibly constructed machine that, that produces products, like the understanding of, geog- of, of geometry suddenly sort of came to me where it never did in the classroom. Right. So it sounds like in your full inclusion classroom, which has an equity element to it, you're also getting towards that idea that things 
pop up that are relevant when you almost sometimes least expect them? Absolutely. I mean, the math required to actually plan out the field, the square footage, the calendars of, okay, when is this corn going to be ready? When are we going to plant this so that it's ready for a meal on May 1st, right? All of those calculations, making it with that real world application really brings it to life. And then you've got the research component too. Kids are like, oh, I don't like reading. Reading isn't for me. But when asked, okay, how are we going to keep these fish alive in the aquaponics system? They're reading all the things that they want to read about that because it's something for them to latch on to. It's something really concrete that's going to create those epiphanies. And I've had so many kids be like, oh, wow, this, this gardening thing, it's a lot like math. I'm like, yeah, it mm -hmm. is. And it's a lot like science. And it's a lot of your writing. And so what this class helps me do is really bring everything together and say, well, life isn't subjects. You know, if you're a mathematician, maybe your life is more one subject than others, but we're all doing such a wide variety of these siloed subjects every day that bringing it together and bringing it in that real world application is huge for kids. Right. And then they see the application of what they've been learning in their classes. Right. And that's really powerful. Very cool. Okay. So question number eight, um, you once wrote in a personal statement, and by the way, I was just, I was very moved by your personal oh, statement, why I teach. I, <laughs> I copied and pasted it and then sent it to my daughter, who's just starting to become a kindergarten teacher oh, in California. That's really nice. And she's Thanks. also written her own personal teacher credo, mm -hmm. which was super interesting to me that so early in the process, she'd already developed a kind of, you know, sense of her mission and vision and her philosophy of education. So I'm going to quote you here. You wrote, I teach because I am not afraid to reflect on my own practice and change my instruction or attitude when something is not working. Modeling this growth mindset for students is crucial to building an academic community where students are asked to perform authentic tasks. It is through these tasks that students can truly collaborate, solve problems, and fail as they learn to be scientists, mathematicians, and scholars." Unquote. So if you were de delivering one of the keynotes at the upcoming Hawaii Association of Middle-Level Educators Conference, and your intention was to argue teachers have to have a growth mindset before kids do, what would you say? I mean, I would say exactly that. You read my mind and that our growth mindset has to start with us. That the day that I stopped taking my failures personally in my classroom was the day that I was free from all of those constrictions. That I was talking with my school leader a few months ago, and we were having a check-in meeting. She asked me, what are you grateful for? And I said what I was grateful for was not taking it personally, that I, I had had a lesson the other day that was just the worst thing ever. And sometimes you, a lot of times, like, you have a few years of experience, and you're able to salvage the lesson. You're like, oh, this isn't going very well, so you rebound. And I didn't. It was like a colossal waste of time. I mean, in my mind, it was pretty hard on myself. But I told her is I was so grateful that I hadn't taken it home with me. I hadn't taken it personally. Mike, that I said, okay, kids, that didn't really work. Like, we'll try again tomorrow. And that that difference between the teacher, it's like, oh, I did terribly. Now I'm going to go home and think about it for four hours and, you know, make myself really, really feel badly about it, obsess over it, all of these different things that you have to have the growth mindset for yourself first. Mm. Because if you believe you're either a good teacher or a bad teacher, how are your kids supposed to believe that they're not just good writers or bad writers? How are they going to believe they can get better at it? Mm. And so I think part of my journey has also been okay with rethinking things, laughing at myself, apologizing to students. Like I'm a middle school teacher. I've said many stupid things in my classroom. I've had many terrible lessons, and that doesn't make me a bad teacher. 
that makes me someone who's human and someone who can apologize for my mistakes and laugh about them with kids. And so that be that resilience in your own teaching is so, so huge because you can't be a good teacher without being honest with yourself, without being honest with kids. So I think it has to start with teachers. I was a high school teacher who did some really, really lame lessons and said some really stupid things Absolutely. over the years. And I remember walking out of the door often just feeling like, oh, my God, that was horrible. Exactly. And then I go to Palolo Pool and swim laps and I come <laughs> back and start all over again. Exactly. You have to believe that you can do better and you have to believe that you can get better at something because if mm -hmm. you're not honest with kids, they don't believe you. Right. They know when you're not being yourself. They know when you're not telling the truth. Right. Okay, so question number nine. Um, you've written eloquently that education is infinite and endless in, in, possi in possibility. Um, and you've, you've cited scholars who remind us that education can be, you know, sort of the very practice of freedom, uh, the means by which men and women deal critically and creatively uh, with reality and discover how to participate in the transformation of the world. Um, I would love it if, if you could describe a couple specific curricular examples where you felt like your words were coming into play in real time. I don't, I think that's a high bar because thinking about ways that I enact Paulo Freire's values of, you know, education and transformation of the world, it's a very high bar to compare myself to. Um, but I think about projects in which I've given kids the opportunity to do what they wanted and opportunities to really think about the issues that they want to explore. Um, I did a unit a few years ago. Well, I did it for a couple years where my kids created a class news or a school newspaper. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can do that in a variety of ways. You could assign articles and stuff. But to see them, notebooks in their hand, going interviewing their peers, they say, you know what, I really just want to interview people about how the dance went. I really want to interview people about, you know, this question that they have about a teacher. I really want to learn more about this teacher and what, you know, their experiences have been. Just uh, whenever I've dropped the reins and said, okay, guys, let's let's try this, I feel like that's when I've enacted that the most and thinking, okay, the way we're going to transform this world is not by me telling you what to do. The mm -hmm. way we're going to transform our world is by all of us grabbing our notebooks, doing what we are interested in, and kind of getting our hands dirty. I think we all have to be part of the work that we're trying to get at and me dictating that isn't, those aren't the times when I feel like that shines. And those aren't the times when kids get to be at the forefront of our classrooms. I wonder if you can talk a little bit, this is a follow-up to this question, if you can talk a little bit about, you know, the idea that I might teach history to you, my student, Zoe, but I also might be trying to turn you into a historian. In other words, you're being the thing that you're studying. You're going to be a chemist. You're going to be a biologist. You're mm -hmm. going to be a historian. And in what ways does that manifest itself in your middle school teaching? Hmm. I think we might assume that I, that might only happen in high school, but I don't think it, it only happens in high school. It doesn't just happen in high school. And I think about it in my writing classes to go back to that, that I have kids that already they're like, I am being a journalist right now. I am researching whatever it is. I am interviewing and they're doing the thing that they want to be. And so I'm not training them to say, okay, well, today you're going to be a novelist, right? But they, they put that hat on because I think we, we forget that 
I mean, we ask kids when they're really, really little, okay, what do you want to be when you grow up? But we don't kind of entertain that as a real thought until in high school, okay, like, what do you want to be? You know, where are you going to go to college? And kids have dreams that are so, so boundless. And we know that, but I think enriching that and cultivating that even in middle school and saying, okay, you want to be a novelist? Go. I have, you know, a kid right now, her goal is 20,000 words. I'm like, go for it. You know, you are being a novelist. You are embodying the thing you want. And so I think maybe not labeling, okay, today you're going to be a chemist and I'm going to filter you and being a chemist, but just allowing them to try that on for the day Mm -hmm. is also the opening of opportunities. That my job is to open doors and to show you that all the doors are open so that you can walk through whatever you want one day, back out, back to another one, across the road, you know, wherever you want to go. But I think letting middle schoolers especially try on that hat is really empowering and saying, Mm -hmm. okay, today I'm going to be a farmer. Okay, well, I'm going to be a farmer for this whole year. And there's so much power in that to have them take ownership of their lives, Mm -hmm. of their schooling, because education and schooling are different things. And I think when those can combine, that's really where the magic happens. I had two teachers, one in middle school and one in high school, both who did the same thing, which was to help Josh become something. So in middle school, it was be a writer. And in high school, it was be a filmmaker. And in both cases, those two people had a huge impact on my Mm -hmm. entire life because I've loved to write and I continue to love to write and I love making films and I'm continuing to make films. So that notion of occupying the role, I might not end up becoming a novelist, but when I occupy the role, something special happens. Exactly. I gain empathy for who that person is and what they do. Right. Okay. So coming down to the last question, um, question number 10. So um, I want to give a little bit of a preamble to this. It is that question, what could school be? But I just want our listeners to know why I keep asking this question over and over again. So again, you know, the author of the book, Ted Dintersmith, he comes out with the film most likely to succeed back in uh, April of 2015. And then he goes on a 50-state tour, and he goes to every corner of every state, including Hawaii. And when he's finished with that 50-state tour, he decides to write a book called What School Could Be. And the point of the book is to capture the answers to this question, what could school be, over and over and over again. And so I come back to the question to you, Zoe, what could school be? School could be joyful. School could be exciting. And school could be a place where kids really get to explore who they are, explore the relationships they have with each other, and have caring people that are there standing by them and ready to catch them when they fall, pushing them forward. But I think for me, it's a lot about joy and finding voice. I think our schools could be a place that listen to children. Our schools can be a place where kids going through there want to be teachers when they grow up. And our schools, I think, can be places where teachers can be joyful. I think there's a lot of challenge to being an educator. There's a lot of, you know, hurdles in the way, but I think if we could have a place where kids and teachers can be joyful and feel supported and have agency in their learning, both as professionals and as students, I think that is going to look different for every place, right? It's going to look different for every context, but I think we need schools that listen to the people in them. So Zoe Ingerson, who is our public charter school teacher of the year for 2020, Thank you so much for being part of this podcast. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Coming up next on the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, Shauna Gunnarsson, an alumni of the Hope Street Group and a Konawana middle school teacher on the big island of Hawaii. 
Find the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as at mltsinhawaii.com. Join the ongoing conversation across social media. Look for Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii on Facebook and at MLTS in Hawaii on Instagram and Twitter. Tag your posts with hashtag what school could be, hashtag deeper learning, hashtag edchat, and hashtag education. Our next interviews will be recorded on Saturday, February 22nd. You can join us in the studio through the magic of Facebook Live. Find us at the most likely to succeed in Hawaii Facebook page. We want to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. If you love this podcast series, we would really appreciate a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help us reach a wider audience of innovative educators. And please feel free to share this series with colleagues, friends, and family. Your host is Josh Rapoon. Our podcast consultant and sound engineer is Ryan Ozawa. The editor for this episode is Marlon Utrero. Our post-production student manager is May Kanata, under the guidance of Matthew Williams. Learn more at hawkmediaproductions.com. And special thanks to Ted Dintersmith, author and education change agent. Now, off to your next epic adventure. Class dismissed. <laughs>